Well, church, as we continue through this season of Advent, we are uh, also wrapping up a, uh, a bit longer uh, series that we've been doing as we've been studying uh, perhaps the most famous letter in the Bible, and that's the letter to the Romans. So uh, for the four weeks of Advent, we've been looking at the last five chapters of Romans, kind of bouncing around in those chapters, uh, exploring how Paul is describing the gift of community. And if you say it's a gift, then you can talk about it during the Christmas season, right? The gift, the gift. This is our gift that we have together. So on this third week of Advent, here a reading from uh, Romans 14 and 15. Paul writes, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. For although all things are clean, it is wrong to cause anyone to stumble by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have to yourself before God. Blessed is the one who does not judge himself by what he approves, but the man who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not do so from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. But we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but just as it, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. Now may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Receive one another then, just as Christ also received you to God's glory. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we're quiet together for a moment, I ask that you would speak to each one in this room by your spirit. Give us thoughts, give us Verses, uh, give us pictures, show us what you want us to see about your word. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we may see and perceive and hear and understand what you're saying to us. Lord, have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we've been studying the letter to the Romans, and even before, we, we spent, you know, about a year studying the book of Genesis. And all throughout that time, um, this one story that Jesus told, one of his most famous parables, kept uh, coming back to mind for me. It kept coming up in discussions about these things. I think this story that Jesus told, it, it captures 
um, the, the big story of the Bible almost as, as well as any other part of Scripture, and it's the story of the prodigal son. Um, let me remind you briefly the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells it better than I do. Um, but he tells this story of a father who has two sons, and the younger son goes to the father and demands his inheritance and basically turns his back on the family and, and leaves. The father gives it to him and, and uh, lets him go. And the son goes out and, and lives just the party life. He lives the high life. He squanders his money uh, quickly, um, and it's you know, it's great fun for a short period of time, but eventually it's all gone and he finds himself with, uh, with nothing. He finds himself, um, you know, longing. He's taking care of pigs, which is the worst thing for a Jewish boy to be doing. And, and he's, he's longing to eat the slop that the pigs are eating. And then he remembers even the servants in my father's household. you know, live better than this. Maybe I'll go back and beg to be a servant. So he goes back and as he's coming, you know, just over the horizon, his father sees him and runs to him and and puts his robe around him and and puts his ring on his finger and, and brings him in. And the father throws a huge party to celebrate that his son has come home. But the story ends on kind of a tough note. You see, the father realizes during the party that his family isn't together. His older son has refused to come in and join the party. And so the last scene of the story is the father going out to the older son and pleading with him to come back in and discovering that the son is angry and jealous and feeling ripped off that, that this son who squandered the, you know, all of his inheritance is now being celebrated. How dare you? And the story ends, we don't know what's going to happen. The story ends with the son outside and the father goes back in. But what do we see in that story? We see the heart of the father. He longs in the party to have all of his children together. If I had kept reading in Romans past where I read, you would hear Paul quote a very Christmassy verse from the Psalms. Uh, It's a verse that you know, we end up singing about in some of these old hymns that are, you know, using strange images from the Old Testament. This, this verse in the Psalms says, the root of Jesse will come and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Paul's quoting Psalm 117 and it's talking about this promise. Uh, Jesse is David's grandfather. All right, and, and uh, the root of Jesse is, is um, the promised descendant of David who will come and restore the kingdom of Israel. He's the king that they've been waiting for. And not only will he restore the kingdom of Israel, but he'll bring the kingdom of God and invite everyone in. All right, that's the promise. And do you hear the father's heart in that story? The father's heart is, hey, there's someone who's not in the party, and I'm going to go out and get them. I'm going to go out and get the Gentiles. Last week, my family had a wonderful experience. Uh, We went 
to um, a party that one of our ministry partners through North Littleton Promise, uh, they throw a, a traditional uh, Mexican Christmas party called a posada. And posada means in, like I-N-N, you know, like hotel, I guess. Um, that's so, you know, there's no room in the inn. And, and in a traditional posada, here's what happens. The uh, people, it's sort of like a, a progressive party. You go from one place to another and you get little trinkets and whatever. There's there's room in all the inns in a posada. Um, and uh, and so we had sort of this progressive thing, went through different rooms. And there's some of our people were volunteers helping with crafts. And that was great. And then we went into the actual party. And it was both very difficult and very wonderful. You see, in that party, we're sitting there and we're, we're getting to sing these wonderful songs that I had never heard before. It wasn't just English traditional Christmas songs translated into Spanish, but it was traditional Mexican Christmas songs. And we're eating a, this wonderful traditional Mexican meal, this soup with chunks of something in it that I didn't know what they were, but it tasted really good. And, um, you know, and a, a drink that's, uh, that's kind of like horchata on steroids. It's called uh, um, atole. You know, it's just super, super chunky and warm and delicious. Um, so, I, I, you know, okay, I know that sounds bad, but it was great. Um, so we, we enjoyed it, but we also felt a little stuck. You see, we were sitting in this very crowded room, and, and everyone around us was enjoying each other and chatting and connecting in Spanish. And we sat there, uh, you know, Aaron and I kicking ourselves that we stopped, you know, I quit Spanish class the second I got into a college that didn't require, you know, Spanish three. <laughs> um, you know, I, that's like the only class I dropped out of in high school. Um, you know, we felt stuck. We were stifled and handicapped by our inability to communicate beyond just smiling and waving and saying, I'm Mike. You know, um, here's the deal. We felt different. And that's what many of those neighbors feel most of the time, actually. From the very beginning of church history, the Christian community has been struggling to unite people from vastly different backgrounds. There, there are four Gospels, in fact, because the early church realized the need to tell Jesus' story in a way that made sense to four different audiences. The first leaders of the church had to organize differently when they realized that, that a minority group uh, in the early believers wasn't getting the same benefits as the rest of the community. They were being overlooked and left out. The 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 early believers had to grapple with the Apostle Paul, who had this passionate ministry to the Gentiles, bringing the news about Jesus to them. And, our, and he argued so passionately and effectively that what Jesus had done made it so that there weren't any ritual requirements before someone could come into the faith. All they had to do was what we heard Henry do just now, which is say, I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus. That's all that was required of them. I mean, all throughout the story, the church has been wrestling with how do we hold this together? 
What would be, what is required of us to be united? As we near the end of our study of, uh, of uh, the letter to the Romans, uh, which remember it announces this news about King Jesus, the long awaited King who's bringing the kingdom of heaven for all and made it available to everyone who puts their trust in him, even the Gentiles like most of us. As we come to this, the end of it, Paul brings the message home to us by banging one drum over and over again. Our loudest and clearest demonstration of the news about Jesus, believers, is the way we relate to one another. That's the, that's the best message we can share. At the end of this letter, he hopes we'll spark his mission on to Spain, onto the ends of the earth. Paul is not calling for them to dig deep in their pockets and give more so that he can have a more effective mission. He's calling for unity. He's saying, insofar as the church is unified, the gospel advances. So what is unity? What does that mean? Unity is one of those words that we all think we know what it means until you try to define it. A, a month ago, um, an elder from uh, the, the upstairs church, he was like surveying different people. And I got to, and I ran into him down here and, and I thought he was looking for something. He said, no, I, I just wanted to find out what you think the word unity means. It's like, okay. Um, and I realized I didn't have a good definition. I mean, we talk about unity all the time. We live in the United States. What, what is it that unites the states? Well, you know, someone who's a poli-sci major would probably do a better job at this, but the, these states are united through a complex of legal agreements, taxes, infrastructure, joint government, and more. All of those things work together to unite these different smaller governments. The system of government attempts to strike a balance between each state's independence and our cooperation with each other. It's a complicated dance that involves the feds, the states, the counties, the cities. Outside of a few portions of our history, though, Christians can boast no such organization. Like the United States, it may be complicated, it may not be a perfect system, but at least it's there trying to hold it all together. Let me tell you a bit about the church right now. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity out of Gordon-Conwell University, oh, Tina Sayer, I was going to give a Gordon, Gordon shout out. Um, there are an estimated 45,000 Christian denominations in the world right now. Did you hear that? 45,000! Now, there's some practical matters that accounts for language and distance and, and whatnot, but that sure doesn't sound like unity to me. That same study said there's uh, over 200 recognized denominations in the United States. So even though we're maybe a little bit more united than the rest of the world, that's a lot. How about we consider the, the uh, three different denominations that are meeting in this building today? The four services happening in two different languages all throughout this one 
building or the eight or so church buildings within a mile of us. To be honest, I, I think it's pretty amazing that each of you are here. Um, you probably had to drive past great churches to be here. I mean, you had to walk past a, the entrance of a, a nice sunlit room of a great church to be here. Thank you, Donald. Oh, man, get this guy a prize. Okay. You know, when you consider all that, 45,000 denominations, all, all, you know, it might seem like the ship has sailed on unity. I've been part of a group of Littleton pastors who've met to pray for unity every month for the last 11 years, including this last week. I had this sermon on my mind, and as we're praying, I was thinking, what are we asking for? Are we asking that we would all somehow figure out a way to become one church together, meeting in a much bigger place, you know, with, with the same structure and leadership? I mean, what are we asking for? What sort of unity is it that advances the mission of God, and how can we pursue it? And frankly, I think it's got to be really confusing for people who are not involved and, and incorporated in a church, you know, people who are maybe not followers of Jesus. It's got to be confusing. I mean, it's, my best guess is it's got to seem like churches are a whole bunch of small businesses and some getting a little bit bigger that, um, that are competing with one another for customers, you know, trying to have the best customer service, the best programs, the, the easiest access, whatever, you know, the best marketing. It's got to seem like we're competing, not united. Paul prays in Romans 15 for unity in the church. He prays, now may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with with Christ Jesus. What is he praying for? And how do we apply it today? Let's first just acknowledge that there's no way Paul could have anticipated our present situation. I think he would have been thrilled to hear that there are churches in in you know sub-Saharan Africa and and Indonesia and and in ancient beautiful cathedrals throughout Europe and and there are believers gathered in most languages known in the world right now worshiping God I think he would wept would have wept for joy with that but I also think he would have been distressed by well gosh the all the ways that we think I mean why do we have denominations that's that's our best attempt to sort of maintain uh, you know, our diversity of ways of thinking about what the Bible says and how to do it while, you know, not condemning or killing each other, which is what we did in the 16th century. You know, you disagree with me about baptism, I will drown you. That was 16th century solutions to baptism differences, by the way. <clears throat> I'm glad we've developed the denominational system to move away from that, but it's, you know, it's a tenuous piece. I'm not sure we can call it unity. Not all division is bad. Some is simply practical. But when Paul is calling for unity, I don't think he's urging the Roman church 
to figure out how to unite with the Corinthian church that's, you know, a, a several days journey away. He's urging the people in that particular community to interact with each other in a certain way. The implication is that our actual relationships are the foundation of our witness. You see, we can overcomplicate the question of unity. Uh, but each believer here needs to hear this simple challenge. The Christians that God has already put in your life are where your work of unity begins. The people you already know, that's where it begins. So we pray this prayer with Paul, this same prayer. May the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. You see, the Roman church's greatest risk and our greatest risk is not persecution from Caesar or any other uh, group. It's the divide that they're feeling between, in their situation, there were two big camps, the Jewish background believers and the Gentile background believers. And they're figuring out what food God's people should be allowed to eat, what day to worship. And those aren't small questions. If you disagree about what food is okay to eat, it's hard to have a meal together. If you disagree about what day to worship, it's hard to worship together. Like, we all agree that nine o'clock on Sunday morning is a great time to worship together, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. If, if, if we divide over things like that, the news about Jesus becomes distorted. Remember the way Jesus conveyed the good news. He took on human flesh. He, he grew up in Jewish obscurity and he started his glorious movement with these amazing words. Blessed are the poor for the kingdom of God belongs to you. Blessed are the hungry for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep for you will laugh. Why did Jesus start his whole announcement of this new community like that? He's saying the very last people who think that they should be included in it are the first ones in. They're the first, they're the top draft picks. His first followers, though, when you look at them, when you look at that community of disciples, they, there couldn't have been a worse combination of people if Jesus had tried. I guess he did. All right. You had fishermen, you had tax collectors, you had zealots. I mean, you have people who are working with and for the Roman Empire, and you have people who are effectively, you know, terrorists trying to take down the Roman Empire from within and, and willing to assassinate and kill any Jew who's working with them. And Jesus pulls these guys together and says, follow me. And they do. Friends, they surely struggled with each other, maybe even hated each other for a long time but they were united together in Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We've been united together. Jesus' love is available to all, and his followers show and celebrate his love as we relate to each other, as we relate, and especially when we have 
conflict with each other, especially. After his uh, explanation of Jesus, the last five chapters of Romans are, G are Paul saying, this is how you relate to each other. And if you look, if you just scan those, it, it is all about holding this unity that's a fight. It is a fight for unity, and it's all about holding it together. So the work starts with each one individually. It gets going in relationships generally, and it climaxes, it reaches its best in conflict. So individually, all right, your ability to pursue unity requires a healthy knowledge of yourself and a healthy personal relationship with God. The, uh, I've I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer once in a while. He was a, a German pastor who resisted, you know, the, uh, the rest of the church's association which, with the Nazi re regime. He was leading a secret seminary. All these young men who were learning to become uh, ministers in secret, you know, they're in this house in the country and they're all living together and they're having conflict. And so he writes this book called Life Together, How to, how to Be Together with Each Other. And he says, let him who cannot be alone beware or be, uh, beware of being in community. Let him who cannot be alone beware of being in community. Here's what he's saying. We need to have a healthy understanding of who we are and what we bring to the table. Look at all the ways Paul urges the Romans to, uh, to have a healthy understanding of themselves and to have a healthy individual relationship with God in, or, in order to be unified. Um, uh, 12, 3, think of yourself with sober discernment for just as in one body we've many members and not all the members serve the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members who belong to one another. I think it's really interesting there before I move on that Paul says we, he hasn't met this group yet, but he's planning on meeting them. And he's saying his work in Rome and beyond depends on them knowing their own gifts and moving in them. I think that's pretty cool. 12.17, consider what is good for all people. 14.22, the faith you have, keep to yourself before God. This does not mean, by the way, keep your faith secret. <laughs> it means your faith is, it comes down to you standing before God. Did you go did you uh, remain faithful to what the Lord had given you to do in your life? Keep to yourself before God. So there's this call for us to think individually, but also in general, in relationships. Paul gives all sorts of commands for how we're to do it. He urged the Romans in, in 1210 to be devoted to one another in mutual love, to show eagerness in honoring one another. In 1213, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. In, in 1215, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I mean, this is a picture of what the Christian community looks like at our best, going through struggle and joy together, not isolating, not leaving one another out. 1216, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So that's in general. But unity really gets real in conflict. 
Unity is actually a sham. It's fake. If we avoid hard topics, if we put on pretenses, if we never become vulnerable with each other. It will, it's frail, it will fall apart if we don't do those things. Conflict is a critical element of true unity, and I am saying this to you as a serial conflict avoider. So Mike needs to hear this. It is a critical element of true unity. Since we are all enemies of God and one another first, unity can only be found on the other side of conflict, which leads to forgiveness and reconciliation. A lot of relationships, not all, but a lot, start with sort of a honeymoon period. It's great at first. But if real people are really rubbing shoulders with each other, conflicts emerge. You know this. They could be just your typical relational challenges, you know, hurt feelings, miscommunication, um, things like that. But eventually, in a community, um, the conflicts become arguments over what is good and right and true. That's what the Roman church was dealing with. They were trying to figure out what is good, what is right, what is true in terms of our food, in terms of our worship. How do we do this together? And, and it, you have a particularly steep challenge with this. Like I said, most of you probably drove past several churches to be here this morning. We live in an area in South Metro Denver with a lot of fantastic churches who are seeking to follow Jesus in diverse ways. You could go to a different church every Sunday and not repeat yourself for well over a year just in this area. In other words, you could run from conflict again and again and again. You could. Anytime it gets relationally difficult, you could go find a new place. I hope all of those churches mean people who don't know Jesus have lots of opportunity to meet him. But for us who follow Jesus, it, it's so easy and tempting to think the grass is greener on the other side. The church down the street might be a bit better for you, a bit better for your family than the one you're with. There are great reasons to leave churches. People have had great reasons to leave this church. Um, but there are a lot of bad reasons to leave churches too. The reasons that keep believers from true unity when we fail to persevere through conflict and make it through to the other side. In the Roman church, Paul calls those who needed to hold uh, on to their Jewish rituals, their Jewish backgrounds. He, he calls them weak in the faith. And, and I read that as an insult. You probably hear that as an insult too. If somebody said, you're weak, <laughs> you, it's hard to take that well. Um, but he, the, I don't think he meant it as an insult. What he's saying is those people needed a few more sort of structures in their life to feel like they were walking in holiness, walking in obedience. I'm going to blow this out because I'm so afraid of this lighting on fire. All right. That one too. I'll leave that one. Okay. That's the third week. All right. Good. So he, he calls the, those who needed less ritual, less structures, strong. And it, then he, you know, it, so then does he say, okay, you who are weak, get with the program. Understand grace. Understand the gospel. Relax a little. 
No. In fact, he gives all sorts of commands that go in the other direction. In 14.1, he says, receive the one who is weak in the faith. 14.13, he says, we must not pass judgment on one another, but rather determine never to place an obstacle or a trap before a brother or sister. 14.15, do not destroy by your food someone for whom Christ died. 14.16, do not let we, excuse me, do not let what you consider good be spoken of as evil. 14.19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. 15.1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. 15.2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 15.7, receive one another then just as Christ received you. Receive one another. I'm not sure there's a better image in all of this for what I'm talking about than receive one another. What, what could be if we were a people who were constantly looking for ways to receive one another, to have intimate, deep, vulnerable relationships with one another that were also open to more people, people who will come in and mess up that great thing that we think we have with someone. What would it be if we received one another? I think that means sharing a place, sharing our lives with each other. I think that's the opposite of what the older brother in that prodigal son story is doing. He's staying out because he doesn't want to receive his little brother. It's exactly what the father is trying to do. He's received the younger brother and he wants to receive the older one. What do I got to do to get you into the party, man? I mean, that is the heart of God that he's given to his people. What can we do to invite more in? Is it any wonder why Paul said the whole law could be summed up in three simple words in 13.8. Love one another. Look, these are nice concepts. They are. They're nice to think about when you're sitting in a chair not talking with someone. All right? They're almost enjoyable. But in that same book that Bonhoeffer wrote to those guys, we have to recognize that that he was writing to guys who were struggling with each other. And he tells them not to let their dream of community, their ideas about good unity, become a destroyer of the community. Sometimes we need to set aside the dream of what it looks like in its ideal. Sometimes we need to remember that if you can't have the one you want, you got to love the one you're with. You're welcome. After all this theorizing about unity, Paul demonstrates it. The last chapter of Romans, chapter 16, it, it's easy to skip. It feels like a huge list of names. But what is Paul doing? He's connecting with all of these people 
person to person. Here's this person. They're a great leader in the community. Here's this person. They were with me back when I was in prison. Here's this person. And then, and then all of the people that Paul is writing his letter with, you realize he didn't write Romans alone. He's got Phoebe and Timothy and Lucius and Jason and, and Sosipater and Tertius and Gaius and Erastus and Cordus and this diverse group of people with him. He is practicing unity. It's real people. It's not some theoretical idea of humanity out there, but it's the actual stinky, short-tempered, funny, overly sarcastic, or, or not laughing enough people that you have in your life right now. That's who you get to practice it with. That's where you will show what God is like. What's the point of unity? Why go through all this work? Paul prays this for his, for his readers. Now may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of unity is to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you want to, if you need, if you're struggling with, wow, why are these conflicts emerging? And if you're getting fixated on them, you know, and as far as I know, we're, we're doing pretty good right now, but things come up in any community. I'm not secretly talking about some conflict that, that is happening in our church, but disunity begins the moment something other than the glory and mission of Jesus becomes the focus. We are together in him. Just like Henry today, we got baptized. We are baptized together into Christ. Gracious arguments about how to glorify and obey Jesus are not disunity. But the goal of the argument can never be to win. It's got to be to glorify him. We need to serve one another, especially in conflict. And that's how we show the world what he's like. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of a community like that? And that's what Jesus started on the night that he was betrayed, sitting with tax collectors and zealots and fishermen, sitting with guys who still maybe didn't quite want to be sitting around a table with each other. Jesus looks at them and then he takes the bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take this and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he says, this, this cup is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He died to unify us. He took the story of the prodigal, the prodigal son one step further. The father not only goes out to try to bring the older brother in, but he li literally gives his life to try to bring his sons together. That's what God's all about. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I ask in this moment that anyone in this room who feels far from you 
would hear your invitation to join together with Jesus and with all those who have joined together with Jesus. Lord, there is nothing you require of us to come to this table. In fact, if we think we've earned it, if we think we deserve to be here before anyone else, Lord, that's, that's probably the one proof that, that we're not ready to come to the table. I ask, Lord, that you would empty our hands and that you would let us receive and trust in grace what you have done for us and that we would stand together at the level ground at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.